following program is a Podcast One.com production. Snellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Molly Ringwald, and we are, yes, going to be talking about John Hughes, but from my darker perspective, and we're going to talk about the novel collection of stories Molly published, and that I liked a lot, as well as movies and the general state of the industry. But yes, last month was the 30th anniversary of John Hughes' iconic 1985 movie, The Breakfast Club. A movie along with 16 Candles the year before and Pretty in Pink the year after, as well as Ferris Bueller's Day Off that same year, changed the face of the teen movie forever in just about the course of two years and four movies and basically one actress. Hughes and Molly Ringwald changed the way we watched teenage lives played out in American movies. And though the Hughes movies seemed a bit tame for some of us who had recently come of age with Porky's, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Risky Business, and even Fame or Valley Girl, all R-rated movies, often sexually explicit and dark, these movies flirted with dirtiness. The Hughes movies offered their own gentle and, yes, raucous, but PG-13 pleasures. The Hughes movies, though they challenged notions of class consciousness and the fake constructs of high school life and its hierarchies, resisted that darkness and could also be seen as signifiers for the upbeat values of the Reagan 80s. And this was in much of their design, a kind of white Midwestern ethic, penny loafers and Spandau ballet, elf boots and BMWs and sweater vests and topsiders. And watching these deeply conservative movies now is like being transported back to the 1950s in a way. There's a wholesomeness to the movies that, despite the new look and attitude they displayed in the mid-80s, seemed vaguely retro, at least compared to A Fast Times or A Risky Business, two popular teen movies from the early 80s, that the Hughes movies almost seemed like a rebuke to. Fast Times had a West Coast early 80s feel to it, stoners and surfers hanging out by pools, explicit nudity and sex scenes, the losing of virginity, the abortion. And the Hughes movies had a resolutely PG attitude. The Breakfast Club is rated R because of a series of F-bombs, but there's no nudity or sex. 
And ultimately, because of their popularity, they carried a cultural resonance that their counterparts really never achieved. I mean, was there ever a 30-year anniversary of Risky Business or Fast Times at Ridgemont High that was championed by the mainstream press as there was for The Breakfast Club this last March? An avalanche of press. Maybe one of the reasons why is that those movies were not as responsible or morally coherent in the way that the John Hughes movies were. I was 20 when I saw Sixteen Candles at a screening here in L.A., I believe months before it actually opened. I think it was February of 1984, and the movie, I think, opened in May. And you could almost automatically sense it, a shift. Something was changing. The moment Molly Ringwald's Samantha, in disbelief at her distracted family, completely forgetting what day it is, mutters before the credits, I can't believe this. They fucking forgot my birthday. And this suggested a new voice in the teen movie. And that was a teenage girl, not a guy, but a girl, voicing her disappointment and outrage. Yes, though there are a couple of F-bombs in Sixteen Candles, as well as a naked girl in a gym shower. It was made in a time where you could still have that and get a PG rating. The movie is still light years away from the sexual attitudes and the satirical impulse of a risky business and even a fast times. Samantha was played by not exactly a newcomer for some of us who knew Molly Ringwald from Paul Mazursky's The Tempest, playing the daughter of John Cassavetes and Gina Rollins. And some of us had already found her incredibly likable and almost incandescent, especially when singing Why Do Fools Fall in Love with Susan Sarandon. It's now tired to say, but it's true. Molly Ringwald in the three John Hughes movies she starred in was unlike any other teen movie heroine we had seen. And also remember, guys were always at the center of the teen movie, not girls. It seems hard to remember this, but at the end of George Lucas's teen epic, American Graffiti, maybe the movie that started it all, when the title card appears at the end, informing us of what happened to everyone, we learn about the fates of the four men, but not the three women who take up equal screen time with the men. Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, who was the only member of the cast nominated for an Academy Award, and Mackenzie Phillips aren't anywhere to be seen. It suggested that Toad's slapstick escapades were actually more meaningful and important than Cindy Williams' desperate and fierce determination to keep her man in the same film. Yes, American Graffiti, like most teen movies in the 20th century, where the creations of male directors and their male protagonists were almost always in the foreground of the action. But Molly Ringwald was the star here. Even in an ensemble movie like The Breakfast Club, she was the star. And she created a real girl archetype not seen in contemporary movies. Dissatisfied, deadpan, chic but unhappy, the kind of girl who knew it was all a scam. And you can see this influence everywhere, post-16 Candles and The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink. You can even locate it in Freaks and Geeks and Lena Dunham's Girls. Ringwald's unusual look, and I say unusual for the average lead, though let's face it, she was quite pretty, was striking. It seemed both glamorous and authentic. The flaming red hair and the pouty beast on lips were, yes, noted. But she updated teen life displayed on the screen in a way that no one else had. It was an attitude she embodied, a sensibility, haughty but overcome with insecurity, unafraid to ogle the most handsome and desirable boy, but never sure she was pretty enough to get them. The brilliant Anthony Michael Hall accompanied her in two of the films and also gave an updating of the prototypical nerd as spazzy, tech-savvy, pop-culturally-wise, girl-obsessed, really the hero of Sixteen Candles as well as The Breakfast Club, and he's still funny and a joy to watch even 31 years later. It's a timeless performance. And their scenes together in Sixteen Candles suggested a new possibility in the teen movie. The outsiders taken seriously with a comic grace and sophistication that also had modern hints of desperation to it. And, you know, Anthony Michael Hall was, full disclosure, my first and only choice to play Clay in the film adaptation of Less Than Zero, though the studio thought of him as more of a comic actor than a dramatic actor. And not swoon-worthy enough, though I didn't agree, even after his devastating turn as the suicidal high school student in The Breakfast Club. Later on, Stanley Kubrick would be courting him to star in Full Metal Jacket, 
jacket, um, a bullet, I believe, Hall dodged if you listen to the Matthew Modine podcast, but also reminded that everyone wanted to work with him. Andrew McCarthy, who was labeled the most sensitive member of the Brat Pack, got the role of Clay, and he also co-starred with Ringwald in Pretty in Pink and Fresh Horses, but in a highly compromised version of my book that disappointed McCarthy deeply. There are so many funny bits in Sixteen Candles that it seems churlish to complain that it doesn't hold together, just like the group therapy atmosphere of The Breakfast Club seemed both fake to me at 21. It was stagey like a play, but with the brilliant editor, Dee Dee Allen, making it all come together with her bravura cutting, and yet moved me at the same time. And watching it again this last weekend, it's both infuriating, the David Bowie quote from Changes at the Beginning, the dance montage, and yet stirring and irresistible, the likability and commitment of the cast, Simple Minds singing Don't You Forget About Me, which became the anthem of an era it still has an emotional tug to it 16 candles and the breakfast club are both sentimental movies that also constantly undercut sentimentality a combo that made them extremely palatable to youth audiences and they felt in the context of things new teens were serious and sympathetic we hadn't seen teenagers given this kind of form before at least not within the live or die tragedies of a rebel without a cause or the counterculture narratives of say the graduate and there were in 16 candles and ferris bueller's day off funny sight gags as old as the marx brothers scattered throughout the film but reconstituted and given an updated twist for me Pretty in Pink didn't count as a John Hughes movie because it didn't have the formal rigor or the comic edge of a John Hughes movie. Yes, Hughes was, to a degree, an auteur with a definite style. And Howard Deutsch, who directed Pretty in Pink, was most decidedly not, though he also got in Pretty in Pink Molly Ringwald her best performance. However, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a John Hughes movie, and definitely his most interesting and pictorially beautiful as a director, and the one that most captured the joy as well as the dissonance of the Reagan 80s. Ferris Bueller had the visual wit that was missing from Pretty in Pink, and it was the most visually confident and imaginally directed of the Hughes films, and the twist and shout parade sequence is still truly epic, edited for maximum impact, which it achieves. However, the film critic David Demby called it a, quote-unquote, nauseating distillation of the slack, greedy side of Reaganism, and the author Christine Lee wrote, The film encapsulated the Reagan era's near solipsistic worldview and insatiable appetite for immediate gratification of living in and for the moment. After Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Hughes never did anything as idiosyncratic again from that two-year period that lasted between 1984 to 1986. And despite making movies with Macaulay Culkin and John Candy, he never again worked with anyone as iconic as Molly Ringwald. Hughes was embraced as the poet bard of American adolescence in the 1980s and really ever since, in tune with youth and youth culture. But did he also paint? to youth. Was that part of the plan as well? Not everyone thought this chain-smoking Republican from the Midwest was as honest and in love with adolescents as the majority of teens did. He only directed three teen movies before he drifted away from them. Was this Arizona University College dropout who sold jokes to Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers and then used this job as a way to get into an advertising agency in Chicago where he helped create successful ads for shaving cream and cigarettes, and then who found himself writing for the National Lampoon that led him into movies as a screenwriter, a piece he wrote became the basis for the movie National Lampoon's Vacation. Genuinely real? Or was there something else lurking there? I mean, they could both exist at the same time. It's interesting to know that Hughes worked in advertising and on on more than one very successful campaign because it was apparent to some of us in the mid-80s that the Hughes films were definitely selling something. They had the slickness of ads and an uncomplicated lack of messiness or irony. Everything in a Hughes movie is ultimately resolved and smoothed out. David Thompson in the New Biographical Dictionary of Film wrote, John Hughes made a very sweet business and often a lovely entertainment out of movies for high school kids that their parents would be happy to have them see. This is no common compromise. 
many teenagers like to see pictures that their parents regard as unsuitable or alarming. Thus, in all of Hugh's young people, there is a faint air of premature middle age that sometimes seems true to life and sometimes seems blankly depressing. Hughes was a smart director and a good writer, but he did not really expose those traits as much as he relished the larger role of entrepreneur or high school entertainment coordinator, unquote. He goes on to write in the Molly Ringwald pictures, the fidelity of observation, the wit, and the tenderness for kids never quite transcend the general air of problem-solving and putting on a piously cheerful face, just like advertising. I think noting that Hughes was a Republican wasn't a rare thing at all in the 1980s, though it was and has always been a rare thing in Hollywood. But there is a distinct desire in Hughes' films to problem-solve in ways that were deeply, fundamentally conservative, and the films shied away from anything too messy. No sex, no drugs, no violence. Everyone except the nasty, rich preppies, sneeringly overdone, got what they wanted in a very matter-of-fact, pragmatic, non-symbolic way. Hughes once wrote, I understand that the dark side of my middle-class, middle-American suburban life was not drugs, paganism, or perversion. There were no nine insects beneath the grass, only dirt. Now, I'm supposing that's a reference to Blue Velvet, David Lynch's erotic teen horror movie that opened the same season that Pretty in Pink and Ferris Bueller's Day Off opened. And I think Blue Velvet and Ferris Bueller's Day Off would make a very troubling and instructive double feature. But there is behind that idea only dirt that Hughes saw the world in a very simple and pragmatic way, which is kind of the opposite of the romance of the artist, a man who never really dealt with irony in his work, unlike Lynch. You also have to remember that he wasn't that interested in being a director, so the idea of him as an impassioned auteur leaves the premises when he realized he was much more interested in being an entrepreneur, writing and producing the movies, but removing himself from the director's seat who supplies the key creative stamp. So, Molly... Your publicist warned my producer, Adam Thompson, that you didn't want to talk about The Breakfast Club because you were burnt out talking about it for the past couple of months because of the 30th anniversary of the film. (laughs) And I understand. I totally get it. And I don't really know how much more info you can possibly give about the making of that particular film or Sixteen Candles or Pretty in Pink than you've already talked about. I'm more interested in the alternative Hughes myth, the man himself, which you have addressed. And I wanted to first talk about with you the idea, which I don't think you've ever talked about of the muse and what it means, especially that 30 years have passed when you briefly were the focal point of Hughes's creativity. The story is, for some of us, well-known that Hughes, then at ICM, the talent agency that both you and, yes, I were clients of at the time, saw a headshot of you and wanted to know who this girl was and was so taken by your look that he actually wrote 16 Candles for Molly Ringwald without ever having met you. And then wanted to meet you to see if you would do the film. So you become amused to a man much older than you who becomes kind of, let's face it, obsessed with you. And he makes three other movies with you and you become very close. Now, I'm not sure about women, but as a man, I know that when I have had a muse before, a male muse, that there is inherently in me a sexual element of me being drawn to them. I have an intense feeling for them, and I write something for them, and often comes from a sexual impulse. And, you know, one example is James Dean in the Canyons. Now, I've also had one female muse when it comes to one or two scripts that I wrote for, and who, of course, I don't want to have sex with, but there is a sexual component in the artist-muse relationship when I write things for a man. Now, I'm not suggesting that anything happened at all, but now, as a woman in your 40s, looking back, did you ever think that Oh, yeah, this guy probably wanted me. I mean, if I saw a headshot of a 14-year-old boy at ICM and was automatically so overpowered that I had to write a script for him, I don't know what people would think about me. I mean, you know, I I wouldn't know 
how to react? Or was it purely and totally innocent? Do you think looking back? I mean, did you ever think over your entire career that there might have been an element of that? I mean, come on, plenty of directors have a sexual interest with their actresses. You know, everyone from Brian De Palma to Steven Spielberg have fallen in love and married actresses they worked with. Even, yes, Howard Deutsch, your pretty and pink director, married Leah Thompson after directing her in some kind of wonderful. Now, of course, nothing could actually happen because you are underage. So it's not as if this was even an option. But did you sense ever a crush? You said you had a mad crush on him. Mm-hmm. How do you think he do you, do you think he felt the same way? Uh, I wouldn't presume to tell anyone how John felt because I I don't know how he felt. I know how I felt, uh, which is that I had a huge crush on him. I mean, who wouldn't at, at that age to have somebody pick your headshot out and then seek you out to to be their their actress and then um, and then keep writing. I mean, he would just keep writing scripts, basically, so we could just keep working together. You know, I think there must have been a crush, but it, it didn't, honestly, it didn't feel sexual to me. Mm-hmm. And and he certainly never made any kind of a pass at me, but it did feel very, um, it felt very romantic. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in a way, very teenage, you know, <laughs> which was totally appropriate for me because right. I was a teenager. You know, he was married. He married his high school sweetheart mm-hmm. and had two kids. Uh, so that that was never – it was never an available option. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, of, of course it felt, it felt romantic in a way. It definitely felt romantic to me, and, 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 it, and I felt that way towards him. Well, I think about how after you were on the cover of Time magazine in 1986, after Pretty in Pink was your third hit in a row, and I, and I don't know if some of the younger listeners realize what a big deal it was in the analog era to be on the cover of Time magazine, uh, maybe one of the empire's highest honors. There is no equivalent. Now, you gave an interview where you innocently and honestly suggested you had done enough movies with John, and there, and there was the idea that this was the moment, perhaps, that he kind of began severing contact with you. Now, this wasn't unusual for me. He had a pretty bad temper and routinely cut people out of his life. They mm-hmm. didn't do what he wanted. This is actually well-documented. And, um, you know, there are countless stories about the John Hughes era that delineates these snubs Hughes felt real or imagined. And Anthony Michael Hall's mother is still pissed off when he severed contact with Anthony because of the same reason you gave him time. I've done enough John Hughes movies. I want to move on. And Anthony Michael Hall's mother thought after Hughes severed contact, this is a grown-up. You guys are teenagers. What in the hell is John Hughes's problem? I mean, what do you think was the cause, the root of this rage in a way? Because ultimately, this relationship you had with him wasn't so innocent. You know, that abandonment must have been a huge loss of innocence for you. And you've often said that John was insecure in so many ways. Or was this abandonment part of the craziness you were experiencing at the time? Were you even cognizant of a kind of normalcy? Did this kind of seem, oh, I've become a movie star. John Hughes now is angry with me. It's all part of a kind of... Well, John John always got angry with people. I mean, in the in the op-ed that I wrote about mm-hmm. him after he, after he died, you know, I, I really wanted to write something about him, but I didn't want to write something that wasn't true. I didn't want to write simply a puff piece, you know, all about how, you know, purely fantastic he was. Because, you know, he was fantastic in, in a lot of ways, and he was great to work with, but he was also um, he was also emotionally abusive. I mean, if mm-hmm. if he thought that I did something that, that slighted him, if he got jealous, if, you know, he, it, he would go into a rage and, and not talk to me for a couple days. That's and this happened a couple times. Times until finally, at the end of Breakfast Club, we just stopped talking completely. It was be, it was be, 
even before Time Magazine. And uh, and he wrote Pretty in Pink for me, but was going to let um, – <laughs> was going to have somebody else. <laughs> I think Jennifer, Jennifer Beals, Beals or something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it was actually Howie that wanted me in the movie, and I said I would only do it if if John would talk to me and tell me why I should be in the movie. And so we did talk a little bit after that, but it was never really the same after after the Breakfast Club. And he was, and it was also different to do a movie that he was not directing uh, because for me it was it was so much the I don't know having him there. Um, you know, under the camera when we did the Breakfast Club, he was you know he wasn't at the the video station. Mm-hmm. He was right under the camera, and uh, you know it was really it was really special. And then when we did Pretty in Pink, it just felt like a completely different situation. I mean, I got along great with Howie, and I thought he did a fine job. But you know, I agree with you. It's not it's not as idiosyncratic. It's not mm-hmm. as it doesn't rise to the same level. Um, I think of yeah. art that that the Breakfast Club does. Yeah, and we're not not going to really talk about the breakfast club that much at all and this question pertains to something in it but it's about a more macro thing you know watching the breakfast club this last week and now as a man who was 51 there were things that i just felt were kind of pandering to the youth audience in the same way i suppose that you can watch the graduate today and think the same thing all mm-hmm. the all the adults are creepy yeah. all the kids are misunderstood and mm-hmm. beautiful even even with that twist in the final shot on the bus where you know both Catherine ross and dustin hoffman you know their smiles fade after escaping the church but that's a darker ending in retrospect than anything hughes wanted to aim for as an adult now do you feel resonance in the film's arguably most famous line uttered by ali sheedy when you grow up your heart dies Listening to that line again this weekend, I feel so much more empathic now than I ever did when I was lost in the narcissism of my adolescence. And that the line bothers me now in a way that it didn't at 20, you know? And I'm Mm. wondering, how do you view that line now as a mother with three children and also as a fiction writer creating characters? And I want to get to your novel in a bit, but what, what do, how do you reprocess that line now? Well, I believe that, that that character and those kids believe that. It, mm. it seems completely authentic to me. And I also believe that John believed that. Uh, you know, it was completely sincere. And I just watched the movie uh, with, my, with my daughter, with Matilda, mm-hmm. which was really bizarre. Um, How old is Matilda now? She's well, she's eleven now, okay. but we watched it when she was ten, mm-hmm. and which is arguably way too, <laughs> way too young to watch this movie. But all of her friends had already seen it, right. um, and and it was just she didn't want to watch. Every time she'd go to a slumber party, it would be on the list, and she just she wanted to watch it with me, mm-hmm. um, and so we watched it together. And it was really strange for me to see it. Um, it was almost like the first experience that I had had of, of watching these movies um, as a regular audience member. Yeah. Because yeah. I never had that. You know, I was I was like the only teenager in America. Well, Anthony Michael Hall was maybe the only other one who didn't have these movies as um, as sort of you know instructive right. or you know or as a comfort. I just we just didn't have that. So it was the first time that I really kind of watched it a little bit from her point of view. But then I couldn't help stepping out of that and, and thinking about the parents and thinking, you know, those right. poor parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, I'm sure they weren't as bad. Okay, maybe the maybe the Bender. Character Character, you know, mm-hmm. who who burns him. You know, maybe maybe he is terrible, mm-hmm. but the rest of them, I, I think they're pro- they were probably doing their best. Right as as you realize as you get older, yeah. most parents kind of tried. They it, try even it, when I look back. Um, you know, you you could cast my the the parents of my generation as you know 
boomer narcissists in yeah. a way, but also they're kind of parents first. Yeah. It is an interesting dilemma to watch the movies now, yeah. as I did last weekend, yeah. than when I was 20, and where I did relate to them, even if I had my own aesthetic problems as a 20-year-old, <laughs> I still found them irresistible. You know, yeah. There was a pull to them. Yeah. There, there are very few moments, I feel, like in, in The Breakfast Club that... Uh, that that really date it, uh, you know, the dance sequence, of course, mm-hmm. being one of them. Um, but the fact that we're all sort of in the same outfit, I think, lessens the the, exactly. the chances of us looking really ridiculous. Yes, um, you know, it's I, I still love them. I think of all the movies that I that I made with him, I think that's probably still my favorite. But you have also said and gone on record that there are things about the films you made with John Hughes that you find regrettable. And one thing you found significantly disturbing was how white the films were, considering the fact that in the 80s, as you said, everyone was writing anti-apartheid songs. What was going on? (laughs) And why were there any African-American or Hispanic characters? Now, The Breakfast Club is a contained movie. It's not. But when you go out into the bigger world, it is a resolutely white white universe. But that's just John Hughes' mindset in a way. It's a kind yeah. of 1980s Norman Rockwell vision yeah. of the upper middle class or middle class suburban. Well, he life. was he was really just writing about his own experience, and you know, I, I think also you know there there were there were characters that I'm I'm sure are you know LGBT that are in his movies, but he didn't have the vocabulary or maybe even the the awareness. To like Ferris Bueller. <laughs> <laughs> or Ducky, Ducky definitely. I, I, I feel like for sure mm-hmm. uh, Ducky is gay. I mean, Ducky mm-hmm. was based on my friend Matt, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and we had a very similar sort of relationship, you know, where I had this friend who, you, you know, clearly was gay, even though he didn't know it mm-hmm. yet or, or wasn't ready to talk about that. But he also really adored me and had that sort of crush feeling on me, and. Um, you know, and I, yeah, I think that character is gay. I think the the uh, the character in Some Kind of Wonderful that Mary Stuart Masterson played, mm-hmm. I think she is genderqueer. But, you mm-hmm. know, like, John John wasn't going to say that. Right. You know, and probably if you talk to John at the end of his life, you know, he, he would absolutely, resolutely deny that. He was also, by the way, not, I mean, I guess he was a Republican when we were making the movies, but that was not, he did not lead with that. Right. Well, well, well you, you also have to understand, listeners, that being... Being a Republican in the 1980s was, was different. wildly different than what happened later on, what happened to that party. I mean, I remember my mom and dad were kind of like Goldwater Republicans. It was – they were basically uh, conservative fiscally but kind of liberal socially. Yeah. Um, and I remember the moment that my mother drifted away from the Republican Party was the moment that religion came in. And that was when she just cut her ties and became, I don't know, what a libertarian. She <laughs> She's not anything. She's, yeah. She can't stand anybody. Yeah. But – but so, so, so when I say that about John as a Republican, I just – everyone, younger listeners, you know, uh, being a Republican in the 80s was a different thing. Yeah. And it wasn't – but, you know, you mentioned the ducky thing. And it goes back to last time we'll ever talk about The Breakfast Club. But it goes back to a couple of huge complaints in his, uh, in his oeuvre. And I watched the movie again. I watched The Breakfast Club again, as I've reiterated last week. And people have pointed to the Ali Sheedy makeover at the end of The Breakfast Club. (laughs) And watching The Breakfast Club again last weekend, the thing that outraged so many feminists is the scene at the end where your character, Claire, cleans up Ali Sheedy's goth punk look and puts a ribbon in her hair and seemingly presents her to Emilio Estevez's jock character who suddenly thinks she's hot because she's less threatening and more conventionally pretty. Now, watching that scene again... It became clear to me that what you were actually doing 
was attempting to show Allie's real self in a way. Yeah. It didn't seem that you were really applying makeup. It seemed like you were taking it off in a sense so you could see her face yeah. in a way because it was so hidden. And you were releasing her from this self-imposed, don't touch me shell. And I thought it was touching this time around compared with being super annoyed at 20, watching that scene where I thought it was a sellout. And if I'm reading this scene right now um, uh, compared to when it came out, have you and Allie talked about what you guys were doing at that scene? Yeah. Because it seemed that everyone from Pauline Kael bashing it in The New Yorker to Jezebel and people like Ellen Page getting so pissed about it. <laughs> are they are they misreading what is really going on in that scene? You know, I think the, the idea was – I think both Allie and I wanted to have less makeup – and and to you know to actually be able to see her skin and to see her face, and you know, uh, you know I I had a lot of opinions and I presented a lot of opini- opinions to John you know and and he listened to me a lot I mean I, he really he really did, but that was a time you know I actually didn't do that makeover that was made by the you know the hair and makeup people and <laughs> and this is 1980 whatever right. you know and that was considered a no makeup look in that right. time you right. know. Um, yeah, if, if I if I was doing that scene, if Allie, you know, if, if we were in control of it, she would have had all her hair pulled back off of her mm. face and 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 no makeup on, and that would have been striking. But then again, I don't know. Would that boy have been as interested? As interested? Would he have been sort of terrified by that? Who knows? Right. I don't know. That's true too. When you read people getting pissed at that scene, women calling it anti-feminist, do you think they're like? blowing it way out of proportion do you think there is this kind of the the feminist outrage that views cultural artifacts under this kind of viewfinder is it justified in a way or do you feel that they're kind of not putting it within a context and that context is missing everywhere in culture anyway yeah i think it's i think it's definitely a product of the time just like the dance sequence you know so i i don't know i i think it, it it wasn't quite right i think the idea of it was was right and the execution wasn't great but yeah in terms of um being outraged as a feminist about it no i think that's that's a little much. Well, I think it's useless to view Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, through this politically correct outrage cultures, viewfinders, whatever, where every cultural artifact is expected to conform to now in some way. So you look at Hughes then as white and racist and homophobic because, you know, the word <laughs> fag and faggot is dropped liberally. Yeah. It's even on John Bender's locker in The Breakfast Club, yeah. along with the date rape illusions in Sixteen Candles. But it's just from another time, another mm-hmm. era. It's mm-hmm. 30 years later. And, you know, as you said, white suburban Chicago was what Hughes knew well. And if we're going to take him to task for that, then what are you going to do with Philip Roth? I mean, yeah. what are you going to do with Woody Allen jokes from, you know, 1973 or 74? Yeah. It's sort of like – but the culture is demanding that now. And, I mean, what what are your feelings about this PC to a fault culture that we live in that demonizes anyone who doesn't live up to these – inhuman moral standards. We were talking about on the podcast the, the whole controversy that happened at Fashion Police mm-hmm. with Zendaya, who was a, you know, Zendaya is the young Disney star who um, went naturally on the red carpet. Her, she has like um, a, a fro? Yeah, a bit of a fro. Okay. <laughs> or actually, like almost like Rastafarian braids. And, okay. 
that's your natural look. And so on Fashion Police, there was a joke about it, that it probably smelled like patchouli and weed. Uh-huh. But the, 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 <laughs> the, the problem was that on the show, they had edited it because the joke was supposed to land, it was supposed to be a joke about bohemianism. They okay. mentioned a Grateful Dead concert. She mm-hmm. belongs there. It wasn't a, you know, a particularly... So so the, the fault was really not with Fashion Police. It was The fault was with the editing of that thing. Mm-hmm. So it comes off as like, oh, okay. So it's a joke about equating Rastafarian with this girl and so patchouli and weed. Well, the girl becomes outrageously offended. And Mm -hmm. then, of course, our favorite public moment now is the apology. We all love the public (laughs) apology. And Fashion Police made not one but two public apologies, even though I would think that anyone watching Fashion Police would know that this is a a show that makes fun of people and is a a jokey thing, that if you're on Fashion Police, the context is this. It's not a commencement speech. It's Fashion Police. And that outrage toward that, uh, calling it outrageously offensive, is it outrageously offensive that this joke was made and that all these apologies have to come from it you know it's the same thing with the Dolce and Gabbana thing in Elton John where they said that they don't believe in synthetic children being Catholic Italian men in their 50s and if you've gay, ever, gay men and gay men too and Elton John saying that we must boycott Dolce and Gabbana and burn their clothing I don't know if the outrage equals the offense anymore what, what really did happen on uh, Twitter was Elton John had started the boycott Dolce and Gabbana, and then people were so offended with his rage about this that Boycott Elton John became equally as popular. Yeah. So, do you feel in this culture now like a fear? A fear to uh, say anything? To- um, I do. I do a little bit. I mean, I I started using Twitter. Yes. Actually, you taught me how to use Twitter. Oh, I did. Oh, I forgot about that. I'm glad you didn't take any of your lessons from me or learn. Okay. Ooh. I uh, I learned how to use Twitter uh, a few years ago, and and for a while I was I was doing it uh, uh, quite a bit, and then I I sort of um, I'm sort of in a, a less a less tweeting phase, so so less uh, social media altogether because. I felt like it just it just made me feel um, just stressed out. I guess yeah. maybe it was the feeling that I was going to tweet the wrong thing, or right. I was going to have a cl- couple glasses of wine, yes, and something yes. was going to seem funny, right. and then and then I w- <laughs> you know, and and it did. I mean, my very my very first week uh, tweeting, I I made one of those mistakes where mm-hmm. I I answer to something that Dan Savage had already apologized for. I mean, it was pretty much a done deal. And then I and then I sort of jumped in and gave my two cents. What was, which it? What was, it? was completely <laughs> it was ridiculous. I don't even want to get into it again because okay, okay. I don't even want right, to okay, okay. you know. But it was it was like overnight these locusts just just, just descended. Oh, well, that's part and, of it. And 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 these were, you know, these were supposedly, well I guess they're Christian people um, calling me a cunt. Mm-hmm. You know, on on Twitter, I'm sitting at the beach with my family, just mm. reading one yeah. after the other about what a what a horrible person I am, and it was just like it was about a 24 hour period, and then they all kind of flew away and exactly. moved on to someone else. But you know, I find that just stressful. Well, look, there's two ways you can go about it. It can be stressful, and then you can withdraw, or you can start to process it, which what is what I how I how I kind of dealt with the Twitter controversies that I got involved in. 
um, is that, okay, it does last about 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. People are going to say bad things about you yeah. and you're going to read them. But I don't know. I, I, I keep thinking that my armor must have been stronger at an early age. Like, yeah. I, I think you were, for example, very well received as an actress. Yeah. I was not totally well received as a writer, <laughs> and there was a, a lot of terrible reviews. People don't remember this for less than zero. Simon and Schuster was made fun of for letting a twenty-one-year-old publish his drug diary or whatever. And I remember those reviews. I remember th- there was a kind of jokiness about the publication of that book, and then there were some, you know, good reviews. And then, of course, American Psycho. You know, that whole thing is so. Yeah, so I it really when that kind came of out. it kind of builds something in you, and I and I feel much. I, I get how it's going to play out. I mean, look, I don't know if you've ever published anything and read message boards about yourself. I, mean, I don't. That is, that's a moment. It, it, it really does toughen you up a bit. And that, I, maybe some people don't want to be tough I, I don't read I don't read reviews. Mm-hmm. I don't read uh, comments. I don't I don't read any of that stuff. I, I put content out there. I give my book to to, you know, or whatever I do, I ask people uh, that I admire. To read it and to give my opinion, their opinion on my work, um, and so it's not like I don't want feedback. I just don't read all of that that stuff. I because I, I don't. I I find it it incredibly unhelpful, and I don't think that it it does anything to to help me at all. And um, and in terms of the Twitter, you know, I, I or the social media, my. My daughter is just getting to an age, my my elder daughter is getting to an age where she's very interested in social media, and she's also very interested in Googling me and looking mm. ab- about what people write about me. You know, so I don't know if I want to sort of continue that conversation. I don't. It's 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 something that I think about every day. Um, I don't know if I necessarily need it, need it in my life. I mean, a lot of good things have come out of it. I met a lot of interesting people through Twitter, and it was and also people have said incredibly nice things to me too. But it's just that other stuff, the the uh, the proximity that I feel to uh, to to that that sort of uh, I don't know. It just seems a little sick. <laughs> it just seems a little sick sometimes. Our need for it. If you want me, you can find me left of center off of the strip in the outskirts. things that I think happened with my generation, our generation, Generation X, is that 
Well, I don't know about you, but I, but there was the notion of the latchkey kid growing up in the 70s, uh, boomer parents leaving their kids alone. And I remember being alone a lot and not minding it. I mean, whether both parents worked or even if one parent stayed at home, I still remember being left to my own devices a lot and hanging out with friends alone. Minimal, if any, parental supervision, no helicoptering. I walked alone to school at six. I went to movies with friends when I was nine or 10 alone, going to Westwood using a fake ID when I was 15 and 16 to get into R-rated movies. I performed in a play or two in elementary school. My parents didn't show up for every rehearsal documenting it for their Facebook page. And I was fine with that. I mean, I I feel it helped me grow up and navigate the world fast. And I mean, didn't you feel, and I'm not talking about our circumstances of becoming whatever, celebrities in our adolescence or early 20s, but didn't you feel that you grew up faster in a way than today's generation? In a way. I mean, I felt like a grown-up a lot when I was 18 and 19 and 23 and 24. And my boyfriend, who was 28 and a millennial, and I watched uh, our, our 80s viewing weekend, um, St. Elmo's Fire, over uh, the weekend, which is about a group of friends just out of college in 1985, starring Rob Lowe and Judd Nelson and Andrew McCarthy and Demi Moore and Ali Sheedy. And he thought it took place on a different planet. He said, why is everyone smoking in every scene? Why is everyone drinking all the time or asking if they can get a drink? Coke was used casually and no one was punished. He couldn't understand why everyone was so well-dressed all the time and concerned with money so much or that the women were so concerned with marriage. And he couldn't understand why everyone was so angry. Why was Judd Nelson hanging Andrew McCarthy off the balcony? Why was Rob Lowe beating the shit out of the guy his estranged wife was with? Why was Emilio Estevez yelling at Andy McDowell for not liking him? He said, why in every 80s movie are we watching this weekend is there a scene with kids passed out in a mansion what was everyone on coke and angry in the 80s he he asked me and i i said yes but (laughs) then then i realized well we were forced to become adults much sooner than my boyfriend's generation was and and that's what puzzled him about the movie and i thought all the things he noticed and was asking about were just background noise, just details that conform to what I went through as someone in their 20s and the mid-80s. But I think for members of our generation who then had kids, that somewhere along the line, there was an, an unhappiness, a loneliness that had to be fixed. So a turnaround happened. A sentimental narrative appeared about our lonely latchkey upbringings. And we were going to fix that problem by always being with our kids, documenting everything, protecting them from everything, coddling them. And this has produced, it seems, kind of the overprotected nutcase who can't place negative things within context. And it's all about how I feel, I feel, I feel. It has turned relatability into a cause. I have to identify with something in order to like it. I need to relate to something in order to like it. I can't see anything unless it means something to me. I can't see anything unless it relates to me. If I can't relate to it, then it's triggering something in me. I need a safe space now. That's so outrageously racist. That's so outrageously anti-gay. You're a big, mean bully for having an opinion. The new sensitivity is a kind of fascism, and it's not really the kid's fault. It's really the parent's fault or some parent's fault. And I have friends our age who absolutely felt that pressure and in some ways regret conforming to it. Did you or do you feel any pressure to partake in this while raising your children? Or am I overestimating the problem? No, I think you're talking about something that is very real and that that I see around me all the time. Um, and, and my husband and I have made a choice not to raise uh, our kids with that that sort of helicoptering and we do give her a lot more freedom than I think other kids have um, 
you know, in terms of, you know, just exploring the neighborhood and exploring, you know, she, when we moved to this new area, she, she knew everybody before we did. I mean, we give her certain boundaries mm-hmm. and, you know, not going into houses when she doesn't know the person and, you know, all of that stuff. But we do, we do give her a lot of freedom and, and we get a lot of flack from it sometimes from parents who, you know, who can't imagine that you can actually do that with your, your kid, but we want her, we want to raise our kids with some sense of independence and being able to problem solve on her own. And so we don't protect her in the same way. Um, we don't curse a lot at home, but we do let her listen to songs mm-hmm. or watch movies that have cursing in them, you know, and I, and I, and I talk to her about it and, you know, and tell her why it's being used. I say a lot of times it's just, you know, pure laziness that mm-hmm. it's sometimes people can't figure out the words to say what they want to say. And so that's, you know, what they use. And other times it's a rhythmic thing. Sometimes it's a character that's talking that way. It's, you know, so we, we try to talk about all that stuff. And ultimately, we just try to do the best that we can. And I guess every parent really is trying to do that. But what I find really interesting at school is that um, there are there are parents that are just it seems like nobody works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can't, I can't quite figure out how that's possible. And it's not just the women. It's the men. Like, it's just everyone's just hanging out at the school all the time. And, and I can't quite figure out because I work and my husband works. Mm-hmm. And we're just always trying to figure out how to, you know, how to manage that. But, you know, I guess, yeah, I, I think it is a little bit of a backlash of the latchkey Don't generation. So? Yeah. But the, uh, the irony is that when I was walking to school at six or seven or eight before I started to take the bus to a school that was further away, the odds of anything happening to me, mm-hmm. being abducted, an accident, whatever, were much higher then than they are now. And so this fear and anxiety that people have about their children and protecting them actually doesn't correspond to facts in a way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to kind of locate where did this anxiety come from, this ceaseless anxiety about something happening to the children. Well, look, I got to say, looking back at how I was raised, and I'm not saying one is better or, or, or not, I just did not sense that with my parents at all. It was like, go on, kids, get out of here. Go, yeah. you know? And yeah. I remember just being out in lots, empty lots with my male friends playing war or something. Yeah. Yeah. And there was kind of a freedom to navigate the world on my own and figure things out. Yeah. I would fall down. I'd skin my knee up. It, there wasn't this, like, this anxiety and horror about yeah. the world. And it's actually a safer place for kids now than it was. What yeah. is going on? I think it's I, – I really do think that the internet has something to do mm. with that because I – you know, if you – my homepage is the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a while, uh, Ponyo's homepage was, I think, CNN or something. Um, and and it, it, he, he couldn't stand it because every single day there was a story about uh, a kid being abducted, mm-hmm. um, a father molesting a child. It was like, I mean, it's just... It's just constant. You're constantly getting these stories online. If it's not CNN, it's it's you know somewhere else about your kid in danger. Um, and I don't think that that you know our parents' generation had that that constant um, that feed that was telling them right. that their kids were going to be raped if they You're weren't right. careful. Right. So the, 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 this information, this kind of fake narrative, enters into your perception of things and clouds it. Yeah. Anyway. We've talked a lot on this show um, about 
the sentimental narrative, mm-hmm. and it's taken from actually, I think Joan Didion kind of referenced it in the White Album. Essentially, as we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Mm-hmm. And since we often talk about movies with my guests because they're somehow involved in the industry, there was a particular sentimental narrative, and this is the last time we'll get back to the, mo- the movies, but there was a sentimental narrative for a long time about Pretty in Pink. With the making and the remaking of that movie, even though people are still outraged that John Cryer's Ducky didn't get Andy, the character you played, and that Andy (laughs) chose Blaine, the character Andrew McCarthy played. Mm -hmm. And it seemed when watching it in 1986, and I'm I'm only talking about this because I watched it over the weekend, and and I had a very, very different reaction this time than I did in 1986, because, you know, there was a lot of outrage that Ducky... In 1986, it seems that that was the movie's reason to exist. Ducky gets the girl. That's where it has been heading to the entire time. Because you actually shot the ending where you and Ducky end up dancing at the prom as friends. And that was in the script. Mm -hmm. But really, no one involved in the movie was really that happy with that original ending for a variety of reasons. Or maybe just one key reason. And I think a key element of that unhappiness among you and the filmmakers had to do with the casting of John Cryer, who just couldn't supply the sexual energy needed to destroy your character from Andrew McCarthy. I think Robert Downey Jr. was considered for the Ducky role, and he could have supplied it. He could have supplied that. Anthony Michael Hall could have played that role brilliantly and also gotten that kind of sexual, weird, geeky sexual vibe. Mm -hmm. But he was offered and turned it down. You know, Mm -hmm. Hughes badly wanted him for it. But it was really Howard Deutsch, the director who thought John Cryer was the guy to play Ducky and hired him. So it's not the script's fault that you had to reshoot that ending. It was actually test audiences that hated the ending of you ending up with John Cryer. From not only a pragmatic view, the ending has changed because everyone wants the movie to do business, but it's also changed from a creative point of view, something that makes sense because of a miscasting in a way. Ducky is very annoying, and I, I always thought that Ducky seemed kind of gay, and you said that you know you felt the same way. And, and you also, I think, pointed out one time that instead of John Cryer winking at Christy Swanson, you should have winked at a guy. <laughs> but when I first saw the movie, I created a sentimental narrative in my head that uh-huh. everyone was a sellout, pretty pink was corrupt the uh-huh. whole thing was wrong now i see it as someone who's made movies who knows yeah. but that is the only way that movie could go and so i in a way created a sentimental narrative about that film and i think a lot of people do without knowing that background the yeah. movie ma- the movie that made no emotional sense to me in 1986 <laughs> now makes a, a tremendous amount and and very kind of in a savvy way. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what is your feeling about when you always hear people say, oh, poor Ducky, we're on Team Ducky. It was, yeah. I mean, what, what do you want to tell them? How do you want to dismantle the sentimental narrative about this movie? Well, I mean, in my mind, they're really, as I said, and I, I continue to say, I really do believe that, that, that the Ducky character was gay. And mm-hmm. that's the dynamic that they had together. That's how he played him. I know John is not gay. Yeah. I also think, by the way, that that John is fantastic in the movie. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think he's he's charming. He's funny. He's awkward. Um, Terrible pompadour. <laughs> Terrible. And some of those suits. Oh my god. But but I mean that's the character. Like he he really. I think he did a, a, a great job. But it's true. We did not have any sexual chemistry whatsoever. But you were kind of supposed to, in a way, for the movie to work for the whole engine well, to come for, together. Well, for for the movie that was originally written, yes, 
But as we all know, you can write a script and it does not, you know, there are a lot of elements that it's collaborative art. Yes. And everything can change depending on casting, depending on how much time you have to shoot, depending on how it's edited. I mean, there's just so many elements that that come together. And there aren't that many movies that I've been involved with that, that really turned out the way that I... I thought that they were going to turn out. Oh, um, you know, I did want uh, Downey for it. Um, I think Michael was offered the movie and turned it down just right away. Um, and then, and then Michael J. Ca- uh, Fox was cast for it, and then he got um, Back to the Future, and so he dropped out. Um, and then, and then Howie really, really um, wanted John, and so once John was in it. It was. It was just became kind of a different kind of movie, and there was no question that uh, that I should have ended up with the. I mean, it was a Cinderella story, basically. It was really kind of this like fairy tale, and how do you have that story and not have her end up with the guy that she wants to be with? Well, yes, that's true. But what if she realized that the guy she wanted to wanted to be with was a wuss, a big wuss, and that she really became attracted to the friend who really loved her? That's also a kind but of. That's- that seems totally Cinderella. sentimental to me. That, that seems more sentimental. Well, that's a Cinderella story for geeks, <laughs> for nerds. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah. but yeah. what what if that role had been cast and it, the guy you were working with did have that sexual energy that you started to notice in the in the middle of the movie? It would have been a different movie. Would you have liked that movie? I like the movie that that we made. I would I like that movie. I think as an adult, probably I would have liked that movie yeah. more. Um, but as a teenager, I felt like she should have ended up with the guy that she wanted to be with. Um, it's too bad he's wearing a horrible rug. <laughs> right. Because during reshoots, Andrew was doing a play called doing... The Boys of Winter yes. on Broadway. And he had to have shaved his head. Yes. So there's, you yes. know what? I heard about that. I... I'm bad with hair. I don't know. I mean, do you, is it really that no? I guess it's if you knew noticeable. it, if you knew it, yeah. yeah. And I also like I couldn't really touch his. Like every time I, my hand went around to touch the back of his head, it was like, it felt it felt pretty bad. Um, you know, I also didn't like the the wink to Kirsty uh, Sons. No, yeah. I thought yeah. that that's those moments. I think yeah. really make those movies. Um, I, you know, it yeah, it, it just seemed completely. It, why, why couldn't her friend just let her go and just right. still yeah. and be that guy? Yeah. Why does he have to get the 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 blonde with big boobs? You it know, was the eighties. It was the eighties. <laughs> yeah, it was the Reagan eighties. Yeah, you know, you mentioned Robert Downey because after Pretty in Pink, he starred in the Pickup Artist with Downey, written directed by James Toback and produced by Warren Beatty. And James Toback has written about Downey in Vanity Fair. The moment Robert Downey Jr. walked into my office, I knew he was the guy. Or more precisely, I knew that I wanted to use him, even though he was clearly not the guy. Cruising, looking to pick up girls with cocky self-confidence was not in Downey's repertoire. But like Jack Jericho, the character who's playing in my movie, Downey was a slippery character, a young man without a centered self, a game player who lied and broke rules with a terrific quickness, and he displayed an open-minded penchant for the most extreme reaches of obscenity. Most important, he had about him a casual sense of doom. He seemed to be someone happy to crack a joke, laugh, and then coolly slip off to his own slaughter. Tell me what it was like working with Downey. I mean, I know Toback has been open about the drug use, Mm -hmm. his drug use during the shooting, as has one of Downey's co-stars in another movie Downey was in, and as I can attest to during the Lesson Zero era. But was that an easy shoot? Where were you emotionally during the making of that film? No, it wasn't an easy shoot. And I think um, 
you know, it was almost impossible to have any kind of connection with uh, with with Downey. Um, I don't think we had a real conversation during the entire shoot. I mean, I think that we've had conversations, you know, subsequently when he's been sober. But then it was just no, we were in completely different places. I was not a drug user. Yeah. So how do you how do you work around that? What does an actress do? Well, do it was also on? that that wasn't the only thing that was problematic okay. about that that movie. There mm-hmm. it was it was also you know we had Toback, we had uh, Beatty, um, we had Gordon Willis. There were a lot right. of strong personalities and some question about who was going to direct. Right. So you know you would be on the set and then Toback would say one thing and then Warren would run over and say, I, I, you know, I heard what he said to you. Like, that's ridiculous. You're going to say this and, you know, and then Gordon is saying, I know they're telling you to stand this way, but stand this way. You know, it was like, there was, there were a lot of soups in the kitchen. Um, and, uh, you know, I liked the script. I really, and, and I like, I wanted to do something that was different than, you know, what I had been doing up until that point. I wanted to do something that was, that was more adult. Um, and I really liked Downey a lot. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I always yeah, I felt too. like Downey was, was, uh, incredibly likable and yeah, charismatic and completely. interesting. And I wanted to work with him. Yeah. Um, but you know, like we already talked about you, just because a script is great and yes. has all these different yeah. spices, it doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to come together and make a delicious stew. You know, I have to ask you, dispel something lingering in my mind. I mean, what was your relationship with Warren Beatty like? I mean, I can only imagine at a certain point, I think there was a point when uh, he wanted you to play Edie Sedgwick there in was, an adaptation yeah. of the George Plimpton uh, biography. Of, he bought it. He bought it, okay. But he was. He optioned it. I mean, I think about him mentoring you in a way, I guess, since you were very young. And I think of him as you've gotten, as you aged and you got older. What was going on? I mean, what was, I mean, I'm asking this just considering his reputation. <laughs> and, you know, even though you said he was only a friendly mentor, I mean, please dispel whatever impure thoughts I might have about that, <laughs> that, that relationship. I think that, that Warren has always been really interested in um, people who, who become incredibly famous. You know, uh, women yeah. who become incredibly famous. Like, there was something about me and my career and, you know, Time Magazine. I think, you know, he was interested in, in me. And, um, you know, and, and he's, I mean, he really is, like, my oldest and oldest friend. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, he's older than my dad. He's 30 years older than I am. That's so crazy. Um, and, you know, and, he, and he's also somebody that I, you know, whose work I really yeah. admired. And I think when I, when I met Warren, um, I was, you know, 14 years old. He, he had just uh, made Reds. I don't think it had come out yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I felt like I'd never seen anyone more beautiful in my life. He was just like, he became this sort of, no, but I mean, there, there, you know, I met a lot of people, but he was just sort of this, you know, how, how could you be that good looking and that talented and that smart? And I thought that about Adam Horowitz. 
<laughs> I thought he, I, I thought that about him. I thought of all the all, all the couples in the eighties. I saw when I saw you and Adam together. I thought that is a really hot couple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought he was pretty cute too. He was really cute, and I just saw him in the Noah Baumbach movie. I heard about that. Yes, where he actually gives a performance, an actual performance. I mean, I know he tried to be in movies earlier. I mean, I remember. I always thought he had a great look. Me too. Even in, it, he, I thought he was really sexy in Lost Angels. <laughs> I guess that movie does not work at all. No. But he he no. he did kind of have this like gravity of he could have he had a face. Yeah, he had that face. Yeah, and yeah I totally agree with you. I was just. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about that because I just saw that movie the other week. How how is he in that? He's good. The movie's uh, iffy, problematic. But he, a little problematic. I think some of it's miscast. But um, it was just like such a pleasure to see him on screen. But you know, it's I read one article about it in I think in the in the New York Times. But in all of the the publicity for the movie, they're they're not talking about it. I mean, and maybe it's because his part is too small, but it's it just seems really strange to me that they're not they're they're not marketing him at all. Well, no, I mean they're they're really marketing, of course, Ben Stiller and Adam Driver because that really is the relationship that's the engine of the movie. And you actually, it's, it's an R-rated kind of dark comedy, but the way that the, that they're promoting it is as a oh Ben Stiller tripping over a step or right. almost getting run over in the street. Well, you know, I know, but knowing that Adam is in that movie, knowing that that Adam Harvest is in a movie, would make me more. Inclined to want to see, and not just because I, you know, right, I right. went out with him. Right. You know, I don't know, but sometimes I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily interested in the same movies that everyone else is interested in. Well, are people even interested in movies anymore? That's also what we talk about, and I, you know, I still push for it, but I even find myself. I mean, I'm sure. As a parent, how do you even go to a movie? I know. I was I was thinking about that on on the way over. I was thinking what movie you were going to ask me about, and and then I was trying to think actually the last movie that I saw in a movie theater. What was it? I can't. I I can't even remember. (laughs) It's. It's so. I mean, most of the movies now that I see in the movie theater are are these these movies that I take my kids to because they have some premiere and they get to go get their face painted or something like that. You know. So I saw part of Cinderella. Yes. And I only saw part of it because uh, it was too scary for my five year old. uh, You know, the second Kate Blanchett came in and raised her eyebrow and said, "Oh, this is a you know (laughs) like the moment that she uttered when she opened her mouth." Adele said, "Let's go." home now and we we just left um so in in terms of the movie that i think i saw in the movie theater because i wanted to see it it seems crazy but the last the last movie that i can remember that that experience was beast of the southern wild and i know i must have been in a movie theater watching something because i wanted to since then but that's the only one that i can remember isn't that crazy? I mean, that was years ago. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. Do you get screeners at all? Or do you... Yeah, I do. I do. I, I feel like that's a different experience. Than, it is a different than, experience. You know, and I do watch uh, screeners, and I don't feel like you have the same experience at all. The last movie that I that I really remember liking was that that movie, um, the one I love. Did you see I that one? I did see that. That's the one with uh, the Duplass, Duplass and, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss. Moss. Yeah, I did see that. I liked that. I yeah. really liked that. Yeah. I mean, that was the last. 
movie that I can remember, you know, Pawnee and I both watched it. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us fell asleep, which right. is usually what happens because we finally get our kids to bed and then we talk and then we see a movie and usually one of us falls asleep and then one of us will finish it and then the other person will finish it another day. And that was the last movie that I can remember. We watched it all the way through and then talked for another hour about it. I mean, it raised questions and, you know, was I mean, because it just has a lot to do, I think, with, you know, marriage and, right. and who you marry and what your expectations of those, you know, are they living up to your expectations? Are you, are you, can you deal with the change that, that, you know, I, I don't know. I thought it was very interesting, but God, you know, just seasons will go by. Oscar seasons will go by and I'll be mm. lucky if I've, if I've seen even one of the Oscar nominated movies. Did you see the latest Godard film, Goodbye to Language? No. I haven't. I, I forgot that you worked with Godard, that you were in a Godard yeah. film. That's so crazy. I know. I mean, it was just, a great experience. It was a really interesting experience. It was King Lear? What King was Lear. King Lear, right. King Lear and Approach. God. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> did you see the latest Godard movie? I did. I did. I saw it at a film festival in Brussels that I was a jur- uh, was the head of the jury on last fall. And so I saw it in just the right way, in 3D, in a giant theater with the cast. Mm-hmm. Um, Godard wasn't there. And um, I really have a, a love affair with Godard's films from the 60s. Mm-hmm. It gets iffier for me. I know um, the 80s movies are... Difficult for me, Hail Mary. Yeah. I remember seeing King Lear. And the experimental movies he's been making lately, I don't know. I'm so in love with that period of like 60 to 68 yeah. that me I too. just, I almost can't see past anything. Yeah. You know, what past. about Romare? Did you ever get into to Eric Romare? I, I didn't. I, I saw all of the key movies and I, I was one of those people who like the uh, hero, Gene Hackman in Night Moves, the Arthur Penn movie says. Uh huh. I can't go to a Romero film because it's like watching paint dry. <laughs> I but I need to re, I need to rediscover. I them. love his movies. I mean, I I I love most old French movies anyway. I mean, that's just kind of like you know if you if you think about why you go to see movies, um, it, it's it's a it's a feeling that I have when I watch those movies. You know, when I watch Truffaut movies, when I yeah. watch Romero movies, or yeah. you know old Godard films, it's like it, I don't know. For me, it's like listening to jazz music. It's just like there's some thing that fires in my brain that just makes me happy well because the art form was kind of at its greatest was reaching its peak you know into the golden age of the the 70s and it was just thrilling to see people discover that we can use the form to create art Mm. but i do want to talk about writing and writers with you because you published a really well written novel or novel as short stories called When It Happens to You, which was published in 2012. And it's a series of stories that keep coming together as a novel with betrayal being the theme. All of them are ultimately connected because of overlapping characters, but it's really centered among the dissolving marriage of Breta and Philip. Everyone, mostly L.A. Denizens, is somehow connected to them throughout the book. Each of the eight stories is kind of a standalone, um, highly readable, sophisticated, unsentimental, written with hard, clear-eyed simplicity. And reading them for a second time, they're really even better than I thought when I first read them in galleys. I mean, you can take the compliment or go. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But they're mo- they mostly deal from a, a woman's perspective, various feelings about the act of betrayal and what betrayal means, especially in the powerful title story, When It Happens to You, which is written in the second person. But there are also two standout stories, Ursa Minor and Mea Culpa, that are from a male perspective. But, you know, my Olivia is probably the story that gets the most talked about. And right now, in this moment of... I hesitate to call it anything but transgender equality. It's even more urgent than when I read it three years ago. My belief system about transgender is 
rapidly changed in the past three years. And I remember my Olivia at the center of this book was the first time when I thought, oh, this is kind of happening. You know, the story concerns a woman in her late 30s who has a briefling while vacationing in the Caribbean with a surf instructor and finds out later back in Southern California that she's pregnant and she has the child, this beautiful boy who she realizes after a few years actually wants to be a girl. And the story delineates what happens to a woman who is faced with this situation. Your child was born with the wrong gender. And now the story is not a polemic in any way. It is not political in any way. It's just a short story, beautifully told. But again, reading it now with everything that has happened with how we are now processing the transgender community in the last couple of years, their their visibility, our acceptance of it, it's even more eye-opening to read it now because of how far you know we've come. And I can't think of another short story that has addressed this in such a way that's completely empathic and yet fraught with a very real fear and desperate kind of parental panic. The the story builds and becomes more dramatic as the son's insistence, and he's still a child, gets increasingly intense and he starts acting out. And Marina, the mother, has to deal with this as well as dealing with her own needs, her sexual and romantic needs, her desires. And she's not perfect, you know. And you read the story in a state of suspense because you are really not sure how it's going to turn out. Rejection, acceptance, somewhere in between. When you get to the last line of the story, it resolves itself. A resolution then on the first reading, I don't know if I quite bought, but on the second reading, I do. But first, you know, I just want to ask you, is my reaction to that story, you would agree with it in terms of like its meaning seems to have risen up in the past three years. And again, I haven't read any short fiction, and I read a lot, that has kind of addressed this. What, first of all, what made you want to write that story? Um, I I don't know exactly what made me want to write it. Um, you know, I knew that I wanted to write a, a, a collection of short stories along the themes of betrayal, and so I started thinking about all different kinds of betrayal. But why? Why betrayal? Because, what was going on in your life? What happened to you? <laughs> who betrayed you? What, I mean, who didn't I betray? Who who didn't betray me? I mean, mm-hmm. I feel like it's just the, you, the universal yeah, thing. Yeah, I felt like in. if I, I just thought, what can I write about that it, that it's that so universal um, that everyone can relate to in one way or another. And so originally I wanted to write about a bunch of, you know, the, the, sh- the stories were going to be much shorter. I, and I always knew that they were going to be connected. And then as soon as I wrote the first one, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to have less characters. I'm going to have longer stories. And there's going, there's just going to be, it just, it kind of, it just sort of happened that way. And, and so I, I knew that I wanted to write about a woman. I have a lot of friends that are transgendered or at different points you know, gone all the way or just have, you know, taken, you know, hormones. So I have those friends as adults. Um, and then I was watching parents deal with, um, I, I think I, I saw two different parents that had uh, kids in the preschool of Matilda's preschool um, that were dealing with those issues. One that was a boy uh, that wanted to be a girl and one that was a girl that wanted to be a boy. And and so it was just kind of, it was sort of like me putting myself in the the place of how this mother would, would respond, being a single parent, you know, trying to do the right thing, um, being, also being liberal, but then realizing at a certain point that her child could be in danger. And when you're a parent, all you want to do is protect your kid. 
so then what do you do? I mean, what do you do? Right, it's right. a it's a really hard thing to write about, but it fascinated me, and I didn't know what the answer was, and I still don't know what the answer is exactly, but I, I was just sort of trying to follow that that character. And, 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 and also the ending, because I remember you at one point, I think one of the things that you said to me after one of your notes was that you thought that I, I should have said uh, it's, it's for my son instead of for, for my daughter. Because I thought that was more of a rebellious attitude on the woman's part. Like, she's not going to say, it's my daughter. She's going to say, I'm buying the dress for my son. Right. But it is more artistic and sensitive, and it, it it's smoother. It's a better ending. Well, it's, the, it's, yeah. it's, well the point was is that she find, like, right. finally right. now she, her, she had a shift in her mind where she saw her daughter as you know, Olivia wanted to be seen. Um, but actually, that wasn't even the original ending that I had. I had this whole cinematic ending with, with Olivia walking into the school, and, the, you know, and I had the whole thing. And, and the story just ended. Once, once she said that sentence, it was like, like, oh, it's done. And that, that's, that's always surprising to me when you have, when you map out something in your head and then, and then your story just like ends on you, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Yes, it does happen. <laughs> it does. It happens all the time creating anything that just, I mean, I just finished uh, directing a series of ads for Persol where it was uh, the scripts that Persol agreed to that I wrote. They came to me to do this for this marketing campaign for uh-huh. Persol. And just being in the editing room for the last two weeks, and these are ads for sunglasses, basically, they are so different now because of so many practicalities that have to be dealt with. Oh, okay, so we, the continuity is wrong there, and we got to like make sure that the car, you know, whatever. All yeah. of these things start piling up, and it becomes a very, very different thing. But that's creation. Yeah, that's just how it is. But I was also thinking, look, I mean, again, it's it's not secret, but you know, Warren Beatty and Annette Benning have a child who's. Who, sort of in that and this brings us back to Warren Beatty mm-hmm. uh, I have friends who have children who are friends with their children and th- it has become uh, apparently uh, and also in the tabloid press uh, very divisive in that family about accepting this thing that's going on and one parent was much more accepting of it one person had to kind of be dragged into an acceptance of it and I wondered if that had anything to do at all with this story or even if Warren had even read your book I gave Warren my book um, I don't know if he has read it or not um, you know and of course I can't comment on his uh, personal right. uh, life but uh, but no his 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 story uh, the story of his um, his children like they it didn't have it didn't have anything to do I, I don't even think I knew about it mm-hmm. yet so no I find it really remarkable that back in the day, there really wasn't a kind of uh, meltdown allowed in the press. I mean, I really don't know if your generation, you had a Lindsay Lohan or if you had a Britney Spears moment. If I mean, someone in our generation and it being so kind of well-documented and all over the place that there was a, a notion about being a noticeable person, a famous person, mm-hmm. had a kind of different meaning than it has now. And that there there was a real kind of value in it to a way that now it just seems kind of disposable in the sense mm-hmm. that everybody can do it or can or can happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. I was wondering well, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Was it a good thing to be, you know, to be like one of the only writers who was actually written about under 30 uh-huh. in papers all the time and you being a very – all of this – the spotlight being put on you in a way where I don't see that happening really anymore. I don't care even if you have a big bestseller. 
it is diluted. The pool is diluted. The idea of a Molly Ringwald, well, I guess there's a Jennifer Lawrence, but that's a different kind of thing, you know, or a young writer today, a young writer today being so well known. Mm -hmm. And I often wonder, well, maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Is it so good that you had this kind of ride in a way? Um, I don't know. Did, I you mean, move, did you get through it? You know, <laughs> it, you know, it's my life. I don't have anything else to compare it to. I think I would have had a very different career had I not been in these movies that became so culturally um, imprinted in people's minds. I mean, I, that I think those movies were they were at the beginning of a career. And yes, I've managed to have a long career, but I but I also feel like everybody that that was in those movies, you know, not just me, but Anthony Michael Hall and 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 Ali and Judd and Emilio, I feel like it was like we got cemented um, in people's minds, and uh, and and I think a lot of people just sort of forgot that I that I that I'm an actor. You know, oh, you you sh- you can't cast uh, Molly Ringwald in that because that's Molly Ringwald. You know, well, I, you know, Molly Ringwald's an actress and other things. You know, but it's just um, I think that's the danger of being in something that's that's just such a has such a huge cultural impact. But I mean, I'm 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 not a complainer, and I'm happy that. I think these movies, unlike a lot of movies, I think will actually endure, and I am proud of them. But uh, I don't know. It's a double-edged sword, I guess. Not to use a cliche, but... (laughs) 